Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening received his PhD from the University of Iowa in Religion, Classics, and Philosophy. Following a Catholic upbringing, Dr. Thomas Scheck experienced a deep religious conversion that led him to pursue full-time ministry as an evangelical Protestant. He served for 10 years as an evangelical free church pastor in Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa, and spent three years as a missionary in Leipzig, Germany. Professor Scheck attributes his return to Catholicism to his encounter with the Catholic theological tradition, above all, the writings of the Fathers of the Church, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the writings of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Among other topics, he has written on Erasmus and Origin and has translated several works of the Fathers of the Church. He's currently an Associate Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University. Please welcome Dr. Thomas Scheck. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. Today is the feast day of Saints Thomas More and John Fisher, two very close friends of Erasmus of Rotterdam and also strong defenders of his scholarship. I will quote their support for Erasmus later in this lecture. Let me begin by commenting on the title of the lecture, which was assigned to me by Father Hezekiah, Rehabilitating Erasmus, Healing the Protestant Catholic Divide. Why should Erasmus be in need of rehabilitation? The short answer is because once upon a time, a pope, namely Pope Paul IV, condemned all his writings in 1559, 23 years after Erasmus's death, and placed them on the index of prohibited books. Prior to this, uh, Erasmus had been strongly supported by the Roman popes, even in the face of conservative criticism of his scholarship. In fact, Pope Paul III who summoned the Council of Trent, took steps to make Erasmus a cardinal to assist him at the forthcoming council. But Erasmus died in 1536 before the elevation and the council took place. What was the index of prohibited books? It meant that you would have needed to secure written permission from your local bishop to read such authors. As I discussed briefly in my book, Erasmus's Life of Origin, 
Paul IV's action provoked tremendous controversy in Catholic circles and was actually undone after his death by his successor, Pius IV. And at the Council of Trent, most but not all of Erasmus's writings were released to the Catholic public in corrected editions. Yet the hostile action of Paul IV succeeded in tarnishing Erasmus's reputation. The sense that I have from many devout Catholics I meet are uh, that they are either suspicious of the name of Erasmus or they view him as some sort of crypto Protestant or religious skeptic, or they are simply not familiar with his writings. Thus, he stands in need of rehabilitation. When I do meet people who bring up the matter of Erasmus being listed on the index of prohibited books, and indeed, two of his most famous books, The Colloquies and Praise of Folly, remained on that list even after the Council of Trent. I like to remind them of the name that appeared just above Desiderius Erasmus on the index. It was Dante Alighieri. How many popes are burning in hell in Dante's Inferno? And how healthy was that for the reputation of the papacy? And Dante names them. Erasmus never named the popes he satirized in praise of folly. From what I can tell, Dante has been fully rehabilitated. And most Catholics are not even aware that he was once a forbidden author. In 1921, Pope Benedict XV published an encyclical on Dante, defending him against his critics. Surely that must have helped Dante's cause, but it also indicates that he was controversial or he wouldn't need to be defended by the Pope. This gives me hope that something similar could happen for Erasmus, especially now that his writings are almost completely translated into English. It is possible for the church to reevaluate authors and theologians who have previously fallen into disfavor. I believe that other examples could be given, such as the way origin of Alexandria has been largely rehabilitated in the Catholic Church in modern times. And another example might be Henri de Lubac, the famous French uh, cardinal and scholar. He himself uh, was silenced by the, by the Pope at one point in his long career. And then he was rehabilitated by Pope Paul VI, and he became one of, the, one of the prominent theologians at the Second Vatican Council. So rehabilitation is a real possibility. Erasmus is an attractive figure for healing the Protestant-Catholic divide because he represents many spiritual ideals that have long been central to Protestant spirituality and which have now been fully embraced by the Catholic Church, especially at the Second Vatican Council. I will mention three. First, promoting access to sacred scripture among the laity in vernacular translations 
as a means of advancing their spiritual growth and knowledge. Two, promoting the study of the Greek New Testament under the principal tutelage of the Greek and Latin church fathers. And three, promoting world missions and evangelization as the very heart of the church's task on earth. Points one and two were controversial in the Catholic Church in the 16th century. The matter of vernacular translations was debated vigorously at the Council of Trent, but was ultimately rejected. That council determined that it does more harm than good for the laity to be given free access to the Bible in translation. However, the Catholic Church has now reconsidered this disciplinary matter and has fully embraced promoting vernacular translations at the Second Vatican Council. I have an article here with me by a Jesuit scholar named Robert McNally, and he studied the, uh, the debates at the Council of Trent on vernacular Bibles. And uh, the, the bishops debated this, and they were not in agreement. Uh, some were opposed to them. Others were strongly in favor of them. So you can kind of eavesdrop on that council and what the, what the discussions were about. But the conservatives, the ones who blamed the Protestant Reformation on the availability of vernacular translations, they kind of prevailed. However, what the Pope decided was to give each bishop the authority to decide whether they would be permitted in, a, in the diocese. So it kind of depended on where you lived, uh, whether you would have easy access to sacred scripture in, in the vernacular. Uh, but that's, that's all changed completely now in the Catholic Church. The study of Greek uh, was also controversial in Erasmus's day. Many conservatives opposed it, but it is that it too has now been embraced. Uh, in theological formation within the Catholic Church. And then the third point, uh, promoting world missions, world evangelization, I will mention at the end of this lecture. Here is a brief survey of Erasmus's life. He was born in 1466 in Holland and died in 1536 in Basel, Switzerland. He was orphaned when he was about 12 years old, his parents died of the plague. He was pressured by wicked guardians to enter a monastery in his mid-teens. He was a devout boy, but he had never experienced a vocation to the monastic life and certainly not to the cloistered monastic life. He did not feel constitutionally suited for that type of life, but he excelled in studies and had a burning desire to study at the university. Yet he succumbed to the pressure and he entered an Augustinian order of monks. In the first years, he had freedom to study and he learned the classical Latin authors by heart. A local bishop heard about his literary gifts and summoned him to become his secretary. He received a dispensation from the Pope to live outside the monastery. And at the age of 26, Erasmus was ordained a Catholic priest in 1492. 
the year Columbus sailed on his first voyage. He was sent to study theology at the University of Paris, where Duns Scotus was the predominant theologian studied at the time. In 1506, Erasmus would earn a doctorate in theology from the University of Turin in Italy. In 1495, the 29-year-old Erasmus made contact with a 62-year-old Parisian scholar named Robert Gagouin, an historian and the most distinguished and influential of the French humanists. Humanist does not mean secular humanist, as it does in modern parlance, but refers to an educational philosophy that arose during the Catholic Renaissance, in which scholarship endeavored to transcend the medieval methods of study and to reset the footing of education on Greek and Latin classical sources. The Jesuit religious order of the late 16th century would essentially adopt this classics-based educational approach in its schools. The youthful Erasmus wrote Gagouin a letter calling him the principal ornament of the University of Paris. He praised Gagouin's distinguished style and also revealed his own comprehensive knowledge of ancient Greek and Latin historians. This letter was inserted in Gagouin's history of France for publicity. Word spread to England that the University of Paris had in its corridors a young priest of exceptional learning and integrity of life. In 1498, after being thoroughly indoctrinated into Scotist theology, Erasmus met a 19-year-old English scholar or student named William Blount, also known as Lord Mountjoy. After spending a year studying in Paris with Erasmus as his tutor, Blount invited Erasmus to come to England. They crossed the channel in 1499. In England, Erasmus was soon contacted by John Collett, also born in 1466, the father confessor of St. Thomas More, and later Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London and founder of St. Paul's School in 1509. We should keep in mind that we are speaking now of pre-Reformation England, when the island nation was completely Catholic. Collett had read the letter Erasmus composed to Gagouin in admiration of his accomplishments in French history, in which Erasmus had revealed his own very great knowledge of antiquity. Collett found it to be the very pattern and sample of human perfection, of distinguished literary abilities and extensive information on many subjects. Collett wanted to meet Erasmus. And he says, quote, but what above all recommends you to me is the fact that the Reverend Father with whom you are staying, the prior of the house and congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ only yesterday described you to me as one who was, in his judgment, a truly virtuous man, 
uniquely endowed with natural goodness. So far, therefore, as letters and knowledge and integrity of character may go to recommend anyone to a person who rather desires and longs for these things than can boast of them himself, so far are you, Erasmus, most highly recommended to me on the strength of these virtues which exist in you. Erasmus replied to this letter with the following words, your compliments, my dear Collett, were so far from rushing to my head that they have caused me, who am by nature over-modest, to be even more dissatisfied with myself than before. For when things are said about me that I respect in others, but find absent in myself, then I seem to be reminded of what I should be like. Erasmus then gives the following description of himself on the verge of his first face-to-face -face meeting with Collett. Quote, the person you are to confront is of slender means, or rather, none. Knows nothing of ambition, but has a great disposition towards affection. Enjoys but little experience of letters, but admits to a consuming passion for them is scrupulous in respecting others' moral excellence, having none himself, yields pride of place to all in scholarship, to none in loyalty, is straightforward, frank, outspoken, incapable alike of pretense and concealment, in character, humble but sincere, no great talker, in fact, one from whom you should not look for anything except a friendly attitude. If you, Collett, can love a man of this sort, if you consider him worthy of your friendship, then pray stamp Erasmus as the most securely yours of all your possessions. I confess that when I first encountered this circle of Catholic scholars in pre-Reformation England and pre Reformation Europe, I found myself deeply attracted to it. I wanted to be friends with these men and to study them in greater depth. The next personality to enter the circle is, of course, St. Thomas More, who was slightly younger than Erasmus and Collett, but intellectually very much their peer. He would be canonized by the Catholic Church in 1935, after being martyred in England in 1535, during the reign of King Henry VIII. I have often wondered why it took the Church 400 years to recognize Moore's sanctity. If that is so, why could it not take 500 years for the church to recognize Erasmus's greatness. John Collett was Moore's spiritual director. Moore praised Collett as the most learned and pious man England had seen in the last 300 years. Moore and Erasmus established a friendship in 1499 that lasted 35 years. I recently wrote an article entitled Thomas More, First and Best Apologist for Erasmus. What I discovered in my research 
was that in spite of fictional legends that arose after Moore's death by his overzealous English enthusiasts that claimed that he had become alienated from Erasmus in his later years and had summoned Erasmus to retract his writings, Moore in fact remained Erasmus's most loyal friend until the very end of their lives. Moore criticized Erasmus's critics, not Erasmus himself. Moore was familiar with the debate that Erasmus and Collett had precisely at this time in 1499, during Erasmus's first visit to England, over the meaning of Christ's words in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. In the debate, Collett was unwilling to admit that Jesus was referring to his own death on the cross when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Collett follows the interpretation of St. Jerome in his commentary on Matthew, where Jerome argued that by this cup, Christ meant the agony of witnessing the guilt of the Jews and of Judas Iscariot in causing his death. He was not expressing personal fear and emotional dread over the prospect of his own imminent suffering and death. Erasmus regarded Collett's and Jerome's explanation as far-fetched. He preferred the simpler and commonly accepted meaning that Christ in his human nature feared a cruel death. This does not mean that Jesus was a coward, but that he was human and he wanted to provide an example of gentleness and innocent suffering. After the debate, Erasmus wrote up a transcript of it and published it. While Thomas More was in prison in 1535, he reflected on Jesus' sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane in his work on the sadness of Christ. This late meditation essentially adopts Erasmus's perspective on the exegetical issues. Moore writes, quote, Christ wanted his own deed to speak out to the fearful. O faint of heart, take courage and do not despair. You are afraid. You are sad. You are stricken with weariness and dread of the torment with which you have been cruelly threatened. Trust me, I conquered the world, and yet I suffered immeasurably more from fear. I was sadder, more afflicted with weariness, more horrified at the prospect of such cruel suffering drawing eagerly nearer and nearer. Let the brave man have his high-spirited martyrs. Let him rejoice in imitating a thousand of them. But you, my timorous and feeble little sheep, be content to have me alone as your shepherd. Follow my leadership. 
If you do not trust yourself, place your trust in me. See, I am walking ahead of you along this fearful road. Moore's work is quite well known today, but its foundation and rootedness in Erasmus's debate with Collett less so. I know a Thomas More scholar and editor of a well-known journal that focuses on Thomas More studies, who has written well on the subject of Thomas More's work, Sadness of Christ. This colleague once told me, when I sit down to write something on More, the first thing I do is study what Erasmus had written on the subject. That strikes me as a very intelligent approach Along similar lines, a modern patristic scholar might say, when I sit down to write something on St. Jerome, the first thing I do is study what Origen had written on the subject. One of the views that was shared by these three men, Collett, Erasmus, and Thomas More, as well as St. John Fisher, was that the contemporary discipline of theological studies was in need of reform. Specifically, the older medieval methods needed to embrace, not oppose, the Renaissance. If you don't believe me, read Thomas More's letter to Martin Dorp. One scholastic-oriented theologian from Louvain named Jacob Latimus, with whom Erasmus debated, opposed letting students of theology study and interpret the Bible under the guidance of the church fathers. He considered the church fathers dangerous reading material. Latimus rejected Renaissance humanism's call ad fontes to the sources. He insisted that the genuine sense of the New Testament writings is to be found in its purest form in the expositions, glosses, or commentaries of the medieval scholastic writers. This attitude was deeply resented by Renaissance humanists, to say nothing of the Protestant reformers. The Catholic humanists viewed it as a repudiation of the Catholic Church's own commendation of the Church Fathers. Erasmus agreed with Collett's criticism of modern scholastic theologians like Latimus. He wrote in one of his letters to Collett at this time, when you tell me that you dislike the modern class of theologians who spend their lives in sheer hair-splitting and sophistical quibbling, you have my emphatic agreement, dear Collett. It is not that I condemn their learned studies, I who have nothing but praise for learning of any sort, but these studies are isolated and not seasoned with references to any well-written works of an older age. And so they seem to me likely to give a man a smattering of knowledge or a taste for arguing. But whether they can make him wise, others may judge. For they exhaust the intelligence by a kind of sterile and thorny subtlety, in no way quickening it with vital sap or breathing into it the breath of life. And worst of all, 
By their stammering, foul, and squalid style of writing, they render unattractive that great queen of all sciences, theology, enriched and adorned as she had been by the eloquence of antiquity. In this way, they choke up, as it were, with brambles, the way of a science that earlier thinkers had cleared. And attempting to settle all questions, so they claim, merely envelop all in darkness. Erasmus will ridicule some of these unworthy hair splitters in his most famous book, Praise of Folly. This is why he was disliked by some people. The first thing I would say to that is that Praise of Folly was written in Thomas More's house at Thomas More's instigation, and it was strongly defended by Thomas More himself. In many ways, it was the product of the minds of both men. It is important to realize that criticism of some unworthy members of an intellectual community is not an attack on the entire discipline. Many people say that Erasmus rejected scholastic theology. This is not true. Erasmus was mainly concerned with the excesses of his own contemporaries and not with the use of the classical 13th century theologians Aquinas, Bonaventure, and Scotus. He says this explicitly in his Methodist, an essay on theological method published in 1518, recently rendered into English by Robert Sider. After commending the Greek and Latin church fathers and pleading that the study of scripture and the church fathers should take precedence in theological studies over the study of the scholastic writers, Erasmus provides a caveat, quote, no one should, however, take these remarks of mine to imply that I utterly condemn those who have left us nothing but questions or that I reject scholastic disputes. From these, truth is quite often elicited, just as fire flashes forth from striking flintstones together. But I am asking for moderation in these and discrimination. Moderation will guard us from searching into everything. Discrimination from searching just anything at all. Erasmus admits that much worthwhile reading is contained in the books of the 13th century authors, but these should be dipped into moderately, according to one's age and dealt with soberly. He mentions the educational reforms initiated by St. John Fisher at Cambridge University as a good model for the linkage of Renaissance humanism with traditional methods. Erasmus was not a revolutionary, but a reformer in the true sense of that word. He wanted to help, not hurt, those who preferred the scholastic approach. In 1499, December, Erasmus replied to a letter from Robert Fisher, a resident in Italy, who had asked him, how does our England please you? He says, quote, I find here a climate at once agreeable and extremely healthy. 
in such a quantity of intellectual refinement and scholarship, not of the usual pedantic and trivial kind either, but profound and learned and truly classical in both Latin and Greek, that I have little longing left for Italy, except for the sake of visiting it. When I listen to Collet, it seems to me that I am listening to Plato himself. Who could fail to be astonished at the universal scope of Grossan's accomplishments? Could anything be more clever or profound or sophisticated than Leinecker's mind? Did nature ever create anything kinder, sweeter, or more harmonious than the character of Thomas More? Grossan was one of the first to teach Greek in Oxford. He disagreed with Collet over the authorship of Dionysius the Areopagite. Grossan's Renaissance humanist arguments proved that Dionysius was not a first century author, an eyewitness of St. Paul's career, as Thomas Aquinas believed. But he was a sixth century writer, now known as pseudo-Dionysius. These arguments were correct but they were not accepted by French Catholic circles until the 19th century. Many of the controversies Erasmus would later become engulfed in arose from this clash between Renaissance humanism and the contemporary ultra-conservative methods of theological study. This conflict with ultra-conservatives was the basis of the later suspicion of his orthodoxy that got the upper hand with Paul IV in 1559. After his first sojourn in England, Erasmus dedicated himself for the next several years to the study of Greek. We can trace this by reading his correspondence. In April 1500, he wrote to Jacob Batt, quote, I have turned my entire attention to Greek. The first thing I shall do as soon as the money arrives is to buy some Greek authors. After that, I shall buy clothing. Later that year, he wrote to the same person. My mind is burning with indescribable eagerness to bring all my literary works to their conclusion. And at the same moment to acquire a certain limited competence in the use of Greek and thereby go on to devote myself entirely to sacred literature, the discussion of which has long been an ardently sought goal in my mind. Erasmus's long-term goal is to become an interpreter of sacred scripture. The means to that end is to acquire a working knowledge of the Greek language. For theologians of this epoch, the pursuit of a knowledge of Greek was innovative. And it threatened Greekless scholars who wanted to preserve the status quo. In 1501, Erasmus writes to a colleague, quote, My own inclination is to follow the path to which I am beckoned by St. Jerome and the glorious choir of all those ancient writers. And so may heaven love me. I should prefer to be crazed in their splendid company than to be infinitely rational with the mass of present-day theologians. 
Renaissance humanism endeavored to base theological studies on the historical and philological interpretation of the New Testament as expounded by the ancient church fathers. To continue the quote from Erasmus, besides this, I am trying to encompass a difficult achievement, one, if I may so put it, worthy of Phaethon, namely, to restore as well as I can the works of Jerome, which have been partly corrupted by those half-taught critics, partly blotted out or cut down or mutilated, or at least filled with mistakes and monstrosities through ignorance of classical antiquity and of Greek. And I intend not only to restore them, but to elucidate them in a commentary so that every reader in his study may come to recognize that the great Jerome, the only scholar in the church universal who had a perfect command of all learning, both sacred and heathen, as they call it, can be read by anyone, but understood only by accomplished scholars. Erasmus wishes to help students of theology by making the church fathers available in good editions, beginning with the writings of St. Jerome. He wants to reinstate the priority of the knowledge of the Greek language for scripture scholars and restore to prominence the study of the ancient Christian writers in their fullness, both the Greeks and the Latins. Jerome is chief among the Latins who had been largely neglected by the scholastics. In 1504, Erasmus writes from Paris to John Collett, Quote, I am now eager, dear Collett, to approach sacred literature full sail, full gallop. Hereafter, I intend to address myself to the scriptures and to spend all the rest of my life upon them. Therefore, for nearly the past three years, I have been wholly absorbed by Greek, and I do not think my efforts have been altogether wasted. I have gone through a good part of Origins works. Under his guidance, I think I have achieved worthwhile results, for he reveals some of the wellsprings, as it were, and demonstrates some of the basic principles of the science of theology. So now Erasmus has discovered origin of Alexandria, the ancient Greek church father who exerted a huge influence on Jerome's exegetical writings and on many other church fathers. Let me explain how the discovery of Origen came about. After his return from England, Erasmus, now about 35, met a 44-year-old Franciscan friar named Jean Vitrier at the Franciscan house at St. Omer in Belgium. Erasmus would later write a brief biography of Vitrier in 1521 in the same letter in which he composed a brief biography of John Collett in which he declared that Vitrier was the holiest and most Christian individual he had ever met. Here is Vitrier's story as told by Erasmus. As a young priest, Vitrier had aspired to be a missionary. 
in lands where Christ was not known, hoping to earn a martyr's crown. He received permission from his superiors to go, but while on his way, God recalled him by speaking to his heart and telling him that his task was to be among his own people, where he would not lack for martyrdom. He obeyed the admonition and eventually became the warden of a Franciscan house. He worked to reform the religious life of his monastic community. Erasmus describes Vitrier's intellectual formation in these terms. In his youth, he had studied the writings of Duns Scotus. He did not wholly disparage the subtleties found in scholastic theology, but when he became acquainted with the early church fathers, his esteem for the medieval doctors diminished. Above all, Vitrier preferred the writings of Saints Ambrose, Cyprian, and Jerome, but his most vehement love was for Origen of Alexandria. Erasmus once joked about Vitrier's enjoyment in reading the writings of a heretic like Origen. Vitrier replied that a mind from which there had issued so many works fraught with such learning and fervor could not but have been a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Erasmus reports the following on Vitrier's knowledge of the Bible. The Holy Scriptures, and especially the Pauline epistles, he had learned by heart. And no one knew his own fingers and toes better than he knew every word of Paul, his master. Had you started him off anywhere, he would promptly have finished the whole epistle without a slip. Large parts of Ambrose he knew by heart, and it surpasses belief how much of the other Orthodox fathers he had stored in his memory. This he owed partly to a memory that was naturally good and partly to constant and thoughtful reading. In his sermons, Erasmus says that Vitrier would so link together the epistle and the gospel that had been read in an unbroken flow of eloquence as to send his hearers home both better instructed and more ardent in the pursuit of religion. His only joy lay in inspiring men and women to follow the religion of the gospel. Erasmus continues, many were the men and women whom he had won for Christ. And how much they differed from the common run of Christians was shown by their deathbeds. There you might have seen his disciples meeting death in the most cheerful spirit. And like swans that sing before they die, uttering words that proved how the divine spirit had touched their hearts. Erasmus concludes his biography of his deceased friends. Such was my friend Vitrier, that jewel of a man. And vitreous is the Latin word for jewel. In Vitrier, I never saw anything that savored of human weakness. And then he concludes the letter with a prayer to John Collett and Jean Vitrier, his two, his two deceased friends. Oh, blessed souls, to whom my debt is so great, assist by your prayers, your friend Erasmus, who is still struggling in the miseries of this life, 
that I may find my way into your society, never to be parted from you more. Here's a nice addition of, uh, of the letter that I just described the content of uh, Christian Humanism and the Reformation, Selected Writings of Erasmus, translated by John C. Olin. Uh, the letter that I just described is found here with a very nice introduction. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Erasmus addressed this letter to Justice Jonas, who was the colleague of Martin Luther. It was written to Wittenberg. And what he was trying to do was to reach out to the, the first Protestants to show them what true Catholic reform looked like. And what it, what it looks like is you work from within the church. You don't split off from it. That doesn't solve anything, but you reform it from within. And uh, so that's what he was trying to accomplish in, in that letter. One of Erasmus's discoveries in the time that he spent in retreat with Jean Vitrier was uh, Origen's writings, but especially Origen's commentary on Romans. Um, this work is one of Origen's longest works, but it was not well known uh, during the medieval period. Uh, there were some medieval authors you could find who, who were familiar with it, but the classical scholastics uh, were not heavily influenced by Origen's interpretation of Romans, for example. If you look at uh, Thomas Aquinas's commentary on Romans, the, the dominant mind that, that controls his understanding of Romans is Augustine. And uh, so he, he didn't really consult the Greek church fathers for insight into Romans, but it was primarily Augustine who was kind of his tutor in explaining Romans. I believe that Erasmus was kind of the rediscoverer of the Greek exegetes in the Western church. And this is, this is a distinctive feature of his, uh, of his own interpretation of Paul. What this means is that Erasmus's exegesis of, of Romans is less Augustinian than people were used to. And that is why when he published his paraphrase on Romans and his annotations on Romans, he was challenged by those who were unfamiliar with origin. On the one hand, the Catholic theologian from Ingolstadt, John Eck, criticized Erasmus for allegedly overlooking Augustine in his interpretation of Romans. Erasmus replied, that uh, he said, I gain more theological insight from reading one page of Origen than 10 of Augustine. And at the, the same time, he received a letter from Martin Luther, who made precisely the same criticism that John Eck had made, that Erasmus's Pauline exegesis was not sufficiently Augustinian. To this complaint, Erasmus said this, for my part, 
Augustine is a man to whom anyone may grant as high a status as he likes. But I would never attribute so much to him as to think he sees further in Paul's epistles than the Greek interpreters. I recall speaking with a patristic scholar at a conference once who specialized in Augustine. I accidentally ruined the man's day by mentioning the name of Erasmus. He turned pale and said, Erasmus disliked Augustine. I said, in 1529, Erasmus edited the complete works of St. Augustine. Is that what you call dislike? Partisans don't like Erasmus. I believe that Erasmus's eclecticism and his admiration of the Greek exegetes irritates those who would like to see Augustine or Aquinas dominate all theological and exegetical discussion. To return to Erasmus's letter to Collet of 1504, he refers to one of his most important spiritual writings, the Enchiridion, or the Handbook of the Militant Christian, or of the Christian Soldier. It was composed while he was staying with Jean Vitrier. Erasmus says that he composed it to counteract the error of those who make religion in general consist in rituals and observances of an almost more than Jewish formality, but who are astonishingly indifferent to matters that have to do with true goodness. In a letter of 1523, he explains in more detail the circumstances of composition of this work. Quote, it started by accident. I had in the castle a friend who was a layman. He had a wife of deeply religious turn of mind, while he himself was no man's enemy but his own, a spendthrift, plunged in fornication and adultery, but in other respects, a pleasant companion in every way. For all clerics, he had the greatest contempt except for me. The wife was fearfully concerned for her husband's salvation, and she approached me to ask if I would write something that might get a little religion into the man. I did as she asked and jotted down something appropriate to the situation. This won the approval even of good scholars, particularly Jean Vitrier, a Franciscan who was the great authority in those parts. The basic message of his Handbook of the Militant Christian is that the Christian life is a constant battle with the devil and his demons until death, spiritual warfare. He describes the uh, principles of the Christian life as follows. With prayer and knowledge, knowledge of scripture and self-knowledge, we must engage in the battle. We must have absolute trust in God and in the reliability of sacred scripture. Do not have any doubts about God's promises. Shrug off all deceptions and illusions. Set Jesus Christ before you as the only goal of your life. Always strive to advance from things visible 
the things invisible. It is noteworthy that the Enchiridion of Erasmus is infused with citations and references to Origen's writings. I believe it is important to point out that Pope Benedict XVI delivered two Wednesday audiences on Origen and strongly commended him to Catholics as a wonderful spiritual writer. I have had my theology students read Pope Benedict's Catechesis on Origen as a way of introducing them to Origen. I also recall back in 2009, having Catholic graduate students read Erasmus's Enchiridion for a theology class at Ave Maria. I used John Dolan's edition in the Essential Erasmus Collection, um, this little volume here, which is, I have, I have never entered a used bookstore that, that did not have multiple copies of this, of this volume, The Essential Erasmus, edited by John P. Dolan. I don't know, they must have printed up hundreds of thousands of them or something. I got that one for $1. Anyway, a priest in my class from Nigeria named Father Hyacinth Jemigbola was deeply impacted by what he read. He said to me, Dr. Sheck, everything I was taught about Erasmus in seminary was wrong. He was a great spiritual writer, and his spirituality is exactly what Nigerian Catholics need. Father Hyacinth wrote a master's thesis on the use of Origen's homilies in Erasmus's Enchiridion, the first thesis that I directed here at Ave Maria. And watching him defend that thesis before a tribunal of disapproving Thomist theologians was one of the greatest moments of my life. In the letter of Collet to Erasmus, he reports uh, that he is preparing a vastly improved second edition of the Adages. Now that he has read the Greek authors through, the Adages are one of Erasmus's most amazing scholarly works. It's a collection of some 4,000 Greek and Latin adages or proverbs with essays attached to most of them, explaining the origin of the adage and giving instruction on how to use them effectively in writing. Erasmus aimed to help us become better writers. I have found uh, Erasmus's adages pedagogically valuable in teaching first-year Greek and first-year Latin. You can teach a, an adage per day to the class, whether Greek or Latin, and then translate it, and then discuss the meaning of it uh, using Erasmus's commentary. Many students have told me that their favorite part of learning Latin from me was learning about Erasmus's adages. And when they say things like that to me, I usually respond, does the letter F mean anything to you? I'm joking. 
They don't remember anything that I taught them, but Erasmus's adages, that stays with them. I now want to make a transition to Erasmus's scholarly work on the New Testament. Although I've, I've already alluded to this by the discussion of Origen's commentary on Romans, one of Erasmus's greatest services to learning was his publication of the first Greek New Testament in 1516. He made the Greek text available on a large scale to Western Europe. This work marks the beginning of modern biblical scholarship. The edition was bilingual in parallel columns. He did not intend his new translation for public liturgical usage, but for private study. He added detailed philological annotations on the text of the New Testament based on his study of the Greek and Latin commentaries of the church fathers. Erasmus reports the textual readings of the ancients, and he shares the wealth of his research with his readers. Erasmus's edition was dedicated to Pope Leo X, the Pope who condemned Martin Luther's errors in 1520. Leo endorsed Erasmus's New Testament and sent him a letter of commendation, which Erasmus printed on the frontispiece of the, of the volume. Even when this work began to generate criticism from conservatives, uh, the popes continued to support Erasmus's scholarship during his lifetime. John Collett wrote the following response to the publication of Erasmus's New Testament. The copies of your new edition sell here like hotcakes and are read everywhere, and many approve your labors and marvel at them. Some, however, disapprove and find fault, making the same criticisms that Martin Van Dorp makes in his letter to you. But these are theologians of the kind you describe with as much truth as wit in your book, Praise of Folly, and elsewhere, to be praised by whom is a discredit, and whose dispraise is praise. Personally, I like your work and welcome your addition, but in a way that rouses mingled feelings. At one time, I am sorry that I never learned Greek without some skill in which we can get nowhere. And then again, I rejoice in the light which is shed by your genius like the sun. In fact, Erasmus, I am astonished at the fertility of your intellect. You conceive so much, have so much in gestation, and bring forth some perfectly finished offspring every day, especially as you have no fixed abode. I long to see the result of your work on the epistle to the Romans. Do not hesitate, my dear Erasmus, but when you have given us the New Testament in better Latin, go on to elucidate it with your explanations and let us have a really long commentary on the Gospels. Length from you will seem short. In those who love Holy Scripture, the appetite can only grow, provided that their digestion is sound as they read what you have written. If you make the meaning clear, which no one will do better than you, you will confer a great benefit on us all and make your name immortal. Immortal, did I say? 
the name of Erasmus shall never perish, but you will win for your name eternal glory. And as you toil in Jesus, you will win for yourself eternal life. It is also noteworthy that an entire volume of the collected works of Thomas More, namely volume 15 in the Yale edition of More's works, comprises book-length letters of St. Thomas More that are essentially defenses of Erasmus's New Testament. They are addressed to Edward Lee, to a monk named uh, John Batmanson, to the University of Oxford, and to Martin Dorp. Moore also defended Erasmus's New Testament in an epigram written to Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, one of Erasmus's great patrons in England, in which he shows how closely connected Erasmus was with this, this archbishop and with the Catholic Church. Erasmus's New Testament contains uh, forewords or prefaces that emphasize that Christ wants his teaching known, understood, and broadcast as widely as possible. Christ came down from heaven to teach us the way of salvation. He exemplified what he taught, and we should imitate him and embrace his teaching. It is disgraceful for Christians to be ignorant of the New Testament. Christ's disciples need only have docile minds that are ready to read, understand, and be transformed by his teaching. Erasmus strongly advocates the dissemination of Christ's doctrine in vernacular translations of the Bible, even though he himself never produced a vernacular translation. He writes the following, I should prefer that all women, even of the lowest rank, should read the evangelists and the epistles of Paul. And I wish these writings were translated into all the languages of the human race so that they could be read and studied, not just by the Irish and the Scots, but by the Turks as well and the Saracens. I would hope that the farmer might chant a holy text at his plow, the spinner sing it as she sits at her wheel, the traveler ease the tedium of his journey with tales from scripture. Let all conversation between Christians draw from this source. He is no Platonist who does not read the books of Plato. How can he be a theologian, let alone a Christian, who has not read the book of Christ? Erasmus wanted the Bible to be available for all to read, not so that each reader might interpret it as he wished under the supposed illumination of the Spirit, but because of the formative power of the Word. These are the ideas that were vigorously debated by the bishops at the Council of Trent, even though Erasmus did not live to take part in that debate. The New Testament writings set before us the living picture of Christ's sacred mind. Christ, as he actually spoke, healed, died, and rose from the grave. They render Christ so completely present to us that we would see less of him 
if we had him directly in front of our eyes. Therefore, we must make ourselves familiar with the New Testament. Erasmus developed these prefaces into a longer theological essay entitled Method of True Theology. Here, Erasmus proposes a method of theological education that gives primacy to the study of scripture and the church fathers. It does not exclude the study of the scholastic writers, but does not make them first in importance. Erasmus condemns the, or I mean, commends the knowledge of languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. He advocates the engagement with patristic exegesis, which should be encountered by reading the complete works and commentaries of the fathers. Erasmus says we should not regard the interpretation of the fathers as infallible dogma, nor should we become attached to one of the fathers that we are afraid ever to disagree with him. But in our study of scripture, we should allow the exegetical efforts of the fathers to assist our efforts. Why does Erasmus recommend the fathers over the scholastics as interpreters of scripture? Because the Catholic Church herself recommends them. Because they saw further into the meaning of the New Testament texts. Also, because their style of writing engages the emotions, not merely the intellect, through the use of syllogisms. Who can read Origen's homily on Genesis 22 and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, for example, without weeping? Erasmus introduces this homily in detail to his readers. Erasmus was the editor of at least 12 editions of the writings of the church fathers, both Greek and Latin. He completed editions of the writings of Jerome, Cyprian, Arnobius, Hilary, John Chrysostom, St. Irenaeus, St. Athanasius, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, Gregory Nazianzus, Basil the Great, and Origen. Forgive me, but when I consider this production, I have difficulty understanding why Erasmus would be suspect in the eyes of Catholics. My question to his critics is, which of his patristic editions bothers you the most? If I had more time, I would introduce you to each of these editions. My own book, Erasmus's Life of Origin, focuses on his final patristic edition, that of Origin of Alexandria's writings. And I, 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 don't, I didn't mean to be harsh in what I just said, but the, the sense that I have is simply that the people are not aware. They're not aware of, of this, this effort that he, that he put in, that he invested, but his whole life was focused on making these writings available. So once, once people become familiar with what his life work was, was all about, they're, they're, I know they're not gonna criticize it. They're gonna thank God for it, but they're just not aware of, of this achievement. The heart of Erasmus's 
theological program for the renewal of the Catholic Church was the revival of traditional patristic culture made new again so that scripture too should be rediscovered and be at the heart of the reform of the church entirely from within. Erasmus commended above all the commentaries of the ancient fathers. These authors, he felt, should occupy the first rank in importance for Catholic exegesis. I would strongly recommend uh, Erasmus's paraphrases on the New Testament books. He had studied the ancient patristic interpretation of the books of the New Testament, especially Origen, Jerome, Hilary, Augustine, John Chrysostom, Theophylact of Bulgaria, Saints Gregory Nazianzen, Basil the Great. And then he represented their exegesis in the form of a flowing paraphrase. I would also recommend his Institutum, which is a catechetical poem covering the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, and the Christian life. I would recommend his explanation of the creed, which is his major catechism, and his essay on preparing for death, and also his work on prayer, basically a volume 70 of the collected works of Erasmus. Let me conclude this lecture by referring to an amazing passage in Erasmus's final published work, his Ecclesiastes of 1535, the preacher, was devoted to the topic of preaching. This work was only recently translated into English for the first time. So it's been buried in Latin for 400 years or more. I know that some bishops at the Council of Trent considered making this work required reading for all future priests. And I know also that this particular work of Erasmus directly influenced some of the documents of the Council of Trent on preaching and teaching sacred scripture. In the first book of this four-part volume, Erasmus describes the dignity of Catholic priests, but I think we could expand the target audience to include pastors, teachers, catechists, youth workers, and Christian missionaries. Erasmus makes a plea for workers to enter the harvest field. I believe the first generation of Jesuit uh, missionaries must have been inspired by this passage, which is the most powerful and convicting exhortation to missions that I have ever come across. Quote, we hear daily complaints from those who deplore that the Christian religion has collapsed and that the authority that once embraced the entire world has been reduced to these straits. It is fitting, therefore, that those who grieve sincerely over this should ask Christ with ardent and constant prayers to deign to send out workers for this harvest, or to put it better, to send sowers to his field, 
immortal God, how much land lies open in the world where the seed of the gospel either has not yet been cast or else was cast in such a way that there are more weeds than wheat. Yet it must not be doubted that in such a vast area, there are simple peoples who could easily be attracted to Christ if men were sent out to make a good sowing. Not to mention that regions hitherto unknown are being discovered every day. It is said that there are others where none of our people has yet reached. I pass over now the boundless numbers of Jews commingled with us. I omit the many who are pagans cloaked under the name of Christ. I omit the great phalanxes of schismatics and heretics. How much profit for Christ would there be in these if good and faithful workers were sent to cast good seed, to tear up the weeds, to plant good seedlings, root out the bad, build the house of God, demolish the structures that do not rest on the rock of Christ, and finally, to harvest the mature crop, but harvest it for Christ, not for themselves, and to collect souls for the Lord, not wealth for themselves. Let me interject here that Erasmus anticipates by 30 years the very famous denunciation of European greed and the old world's exploitation of the Native American peoples written by Bartolome de Las Casas. In 1552, Las Casas published his famous book, A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies, in which he passionately denounced the way Columbus's initial evangelizing mission had been corrupted into a genocidal colonization by the later conquistadors. Most historians are familiar with Las Casas's book. Bishop Robert Barron, in his book entitled 12 Pivotal Players, enrolls Las Casas as one of the great Christian heroes who shaped the church and changed the world. But as early as 1525, Erasmus had been speaking out against these evils in his book on praying to God, for example. In, the, in that book, he says this, it is also not difficult to divine what is said about us by peoples who were unknown to us till recently and whose lands and wealth we now assail by force not so that we may win them for Christ, but so that we may extend our own dominion and sovereignty, and so that we may increase our wealth, which we place above God. For they have seen so much greed, lust, and cruelty in the actions of those who profess the cross of Christ, that those whom we attack as if they are wild beasts seem human, while we, compared with them, seem to be the beasts and not human beings, far less Christians. So yes, Erasmus does promote missions and evangelization, but he most certainly did not promote avarice 
and the exploitation of the native peoples. I now return to his exhortation to missions found in his book on preaching. Quote, there remains the final excuse, mortal danger. But since all must die, what more attractive or happier death could befall than for the sake of the gospel? Those who traveled to Jerusalem from the farthest regions of the earth exposed themselves to mortal danger, and all do not return home safe from that pilgrimage. Yet every year, such a multitude of men runs to Jerusalem to see some place or other. And is mortal peril offered as excuse here? What I ask is the importance of seeing the ruins of Jerusalem. But building a spiritual Jerusalem in men's minds is truly important. How many soldiers fearlessly commit themselves to battle? holding their life cheap for the sake of a mortal prince. And does that highest monarch who promises in return for military service a crown of eternal glory not find soldiers endowed with similar courage? How much more desirable to die as Paul died than to wither away from consumption, to be tormented for many years by gout, to be twisted by paralysis, to die again and again from the stone, Moreover, supposing death should come, it will not come before the day that the Father has appointed for his own. The apostles lived in a world of noisy confusion and reached a full old age. Therefore, there is no reason to fear death under the protection of Christ, who will not allow a hair to fall to the earth unless by his Father's will. Finally, how is it proper that those who profess the apostolic life are deterred from the apostolic office by love for life? To give up one's life for the gospel is perhaps truly apostolic. Come on then, you men of bravery, you glorious leaders of Christian soldiery, put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of devotion, Take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and girding your loins with the belt of modesty and with your feet shod, which represent the emotions, ready with the whole spiritual panoply to preach the gospel of peace. Gird yourselves up with fearless courage for the glorious enterprise. Cast down, kill, slaughter, not men but ignorance, impiety, and every vice. For to kill in this way is to save. Ensure not that you return home from them richer, but that you enrich them with spiritual wealth. Count it a rich booty if you snatch so many souls from the tyranny of Satan and claim them for the Redeemer. If you lead hordes of captives in triumph into heaven for him. That to which we urge you is difficult, but it is also the most beautiful and excellent enterprise of all. De Lubach refers to this passage in his essay on the theological foundations of missions in Theology of History. 
from reading his essay, I learned that the missionary crusade to pagan peoples that Erasmus preached was opposed for theological reasons by both Martin Luther and John Calvin. However, uh, Protestants of later centuries embraced the impulse to world missions, and certainly Protestant evangelicals today in particular cherish a missionary zeal, just as the Catholic Church does. Erasmus concludes book one of his book on preaching with the following reflection concerning the rewards that will come to Christ's faithful shepherds, faithful teachers, and faithful missionaries if they despise the cheap rewards of this world and apply themselves wholeheartedly to this most beautiful campaign of all. After a short time, they will receive the eternal crown of blessed immortality. Quote, and if any labor is to be expended here, for nothing important is accomplished without effort. Let them consider how great a solace it will be to hear the beatific words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Come, valiant leader, and celebrate a heavenly triumph. Take your share of joy, since you did not refuse to share afflictions for my sake. What a celebration there will be. What applause, what a glad acclamation. When you see many there who will attribute to you the receipt of their happiness, of their salvation, whom you led to godliness, whom you recalled from error, whom you inflamed with a love for the blessings of heaven. Indeed, since perfect charity makes everything there common to all, what will be more fortunate, more splendid, more glorious than you when the countless myriads of heavenly orders will congratulate you on every side with one mouth, with harmonious voice, and will give thanks to Christ, the Prince who deigned to increase through you that blessed company that for perfect beatitude needs only to have the number of the elect filled up and happiness will be full and absolute in every respect after the resurrection of bodies. Maybe such rewards are in store for those who founded the Institute of Catholic Culture. And for those listening to this lecture, I hope so. They are promised to all who devote themselves to spreading the gospel of Christ on earth. All I know is that Erasmus's life, his works, his friendships, his spiritual writings, his editions of the church fathers, his penetrating exegesis of the New Testament have been deeply inspiring to me. Let me conclude this lecture by citing the two saints whose feast day we celebrate today. The two canonized saints who actually knew Erasmus. John Fisher of Rochester, 
describes Erasmus as one who is, quote, truly orthodox and renowned in scriptural exegesis. Erasmus teaches irrefutably that everyone must pursue the teaching of the Catholic Church. And I conclude with a quote from St. Thomas More from his letter to Erasmus of June 1532. Quote, we are not all Erasmuses, nor would it be fitting for all of us to expect what God has graciously granted to you, almost alone among mortals. For who else besides you would dare to promise what you perform in the face of the growing burdens of old age, afflicted with ailments that would wear down and crush even a healthy young man? You have for many years never ceased to give a good account of all your time by constantly publishing outstanding books to the whole world, as if the weight of advancing age or bad health robbed you of nothing. While this seems miraculous to anyone who considers it, it is to their amazement doubly miraculous that the carping critics who have sprung up everywhere against you, who might overcome even the courage of Hercules, do not deter you in any way from writing. Such enemies are continually stirred up by envy to your incomparable talent and your learning, which surpasses even so great a talent. For they easily see that they will never be able to rise to the level of your natural endowments in your industry. In their inflated pride, almost ready to burst, they cannot bear that they should sink so low beneath you. So they conspire together, each scheming as best he can to turn your glory to their inglorious advantage by unceasing slander. But while they roll their Sisyphean stones year after year, what do they accomplish finally by this vain and nefarious labor except to have the stone always fall back on their heads? while you emerge ever more exalted and illustrious. That, in brief, is my opinion of Erasmus. Thank you. Doctor, that was awesome. On behalf of all of our participants tonight, I, I thank you for your wonderful preparation to be with us, your presentation. And uh, I don't know, I'm caught between saying an introduction to Erasmus and a full-blown like tour de force because I feel like I, we were introduced to the context of his life, his interests, and then actually quoting his words, which were so beautiful and insightful and inspiring. Thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of all of our participants tonight. We're going to stay around for a little bit of Q&A for those. I know it's been a long evening tonight, but well worth our time. First one is, is kind of one I mentioned earlier, which is regarding his canonization. I was, you were reading these quotes. I mean, it was like, it was like honey. It was so beautiful and so and spiritually insightful. So just wondering kind of what the history of that is. Um, has there ever been a movement, a uh, substantial movement for his canonization? In my book, uh, Erasmus's Life of Origin, which focuses on his uh, program for theological renewal, and then his, his assessment of origin, and then it contains a translation 
of the prefaces that he wrote to his edition of Origins Writings. But I have an appendix chapter in this book in which I discuss uh, the reception of Erasmus in the 16th century. And so I go, like during his lifetime, he was strongly supported by the popes. Then what happened was, you know, with the Protestant Reformation causing more and more division, the, the conservative, some conservative bishops kind of blamed the Protestant Reformation on uh, the Renaissance humanists. And so they fell into disfavor. And so the, there was there was Paul IV, you know, who actually kind of reminds me of the uh, Grand Inquisitor in uh, Dostoevsky's novel. Um, he was really just a pretty horrible person. And um, and I'm not, I don't say that just because he he went after Erasmus. He also went after Philip of Neri, and uh, he was suspicious of all sorts of people, including his, some of his own cardinals and stuff. But anyway, um, in this book, I, I found a bishop of Vienna. Uh, his name was uh, Friedrich Nausea. And in one year after Erasmus's death, he published an oration in praise of Erasmus, and he asked the church to canonize him. Um, I translated portions of that writing in, in this book. So, yeah, so there was at least at least one voice, you know, who uh, who actually, you know, requested that the church canonize him. Um, but the, uh, you know, the great the great saints, uh, Moore and Fisher, I, you know, that would be a starting point. Um, how did they view him? They, they revered him. And so. That would be a, a good place to, you know, to begin with. That why, if he's if he's such a suspect figure, why, why did these these two canonized saints that most Catholics deeply love, at least Thomas More, I think, is more well known than Fisher. Uh, why why did they have no hesitations about Erasmus? Why why did why did they so strongly defend him? Anyway, I I hope to kind of lay the groundwork in my life to see this happen eventually, but I don't think it's I think it's going to be, you know, decades from now. His writings have only just recently been fully translated into English, and so it's only just within the last few years that we can even get easy access to some extremely important works, you know. So imagine what it would be like, you know, if if Thomas Aquinas's writings were not accessible in English, <laughs> you know. So um, so that's been a hindrance, I believe. Um, but but the, the time now is is on our side. Doctor, so I you had sent me some uh, pictures to accompany this lecture. I opted not to share them in the middle of the lecture because I didn't want to uh, interrupt you. Um, instead, I opted. I'm gonna I'm gonna share them with participants afterwards by linking them in the follow up email. Father just mentioned, uh, but your response to the previous question uh, it makes me think of one of the images in there of uh, the index uh, of prohibited books. Could I throw that up here on the screen for sure. participants? And, and would you mind just explaining uh, you know what it meant to be on the index and the ramifications there? 
Yeah, um, that page there in the upper left-hand corner, you can see um, Don, uh, Dante, Dante's Monarchia. So that's one of the works of Dante, where he very harshly criticized uh, church authorities. Uh, and then right below that is Desiderius Erasmus with a, some, of his, some of his works listed there. Uh, mainly, I just want to remind Catholics that many, many authors were on this index and uh, the church was, you know, kind of very defense in a very defensive mode. And so uh, it didn't necessarily mean that there were there were any theological errors in the work, but it, it could simply mean that the, the times are not favorable to allow this book to have to be freely accessed uh, because of the use that this book could be put uh, by Protestants, for example. So um, I know another work that was on the index by uh, Lorenzo Valla, the humanist, who uh, he exposed the donation of Constantine as a forgery. The donation of Constantine was a document that was actually forged in like the 800s that claimed that Constantine handed over like half of Italy to the Pope. <laughs> and uh, it was a forgery. But in the medieval and late medieval time, it was accepted as authentic. And the popes used it to justify, you know, their control over the papal states. And here comes this Greek scholar who proved that this, this was not written in in the 300s, it was written much, much later. The language doesn't match, you know? And uh, well, that work was put on the index, Vala's work. Um, why? Because the, the Protestants were using it to expose, you know, the corruption of the papacy and the, the, the abuse of authority in the Catholic church. Now, I mean, I wish, that it would that the church would not have put that writing on the index just for the sake of the truth, uh, but the authorities, you know, wanted to protect the church, and so the index uh, it didn't necessarily mean uh, that that the writings contained error. It, it could be the writings could be easily misunderstood, you know, and this type of thing. But anyway. When the index was in force, you you would need to receive permission from your bishop to read such such writings. Uh, so, and then if you were a Catholic publisher, uh, you you either could not uh, print that work, or you would need to receive special permission to to uh, to print it. Doctor, we have uh, two questions coming in that are related. Um, one from Chris, and one from Caitlin. Uh, asking, did he ever, did Erasmus ever try to intercede on Thomas More's behalf with Henry VIII or his counselors? Did Erasmus publish any reflections on More's uh, execution uh, or his situation? Yes, yes, he did. Um, as, as far as like direct, direct intercession, he, he didn't really know what was, what was going on in detail. But when More was killed, Erasmus uh, said, 
that he felt that he had died. I died, I said, I died with Thomas More. Um, you know, some of the things Erasmus uh, said in letters, people, people take little snippets out of these, out of these letters and they try to depict him as some kind of uh, coward or um, weakling or something like this. And they, they just, they don't understand the uh, historical circumstances in, in, in this time period. You know, for example, Erasmus once said something like, I wish more would not have gotten involved in these, uh, in these conflicts, you know, with, with the, the, the king. I mean, he's simply expressing regret over what happened, but he's not, he's not uh, disparaging uh, the heroism of Moore by saying that. But some people try to make this radical distinction between Moore and Erasmus in terms of their character. And I, I just, I think it is so wrong. As far as I'm concerned, Erasmus was also a martyr because he was, he was persecuted uh, for things that uh, he wasn't guilty of. He, he wasn't heretical in his theology, but conservatives accused him of that. And so he would have to write defenses of his, of his writings. And this was like a lifelong persecution. When he describes Jean Vitrier as Christ said to him, uh, you will not lack for martyrdom. I mean, that's the fate of every faithful servant of Christ. They're going to suffer if you're faithful. You're going to have conflict with with your bishop or other, you know, authorities. And so, to me, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't look at martyrdom as, as simply, you know, shedding your blood for Christ. What about living a holy life when you're when you're faced with unjust criticism, unjust accusations, and yet you never seek vengeance against those who are trying to harm you. You love them unconditionally. I mean, that's true martyrdom. And um, I think Erasmus actually said this, that said uh, something like St. Bartholomew was pierced by 30 arrows. I have been pierced by 3,000 or something like that. And, um, and, and I think that latter way of, of martyrdom is more difficult because you're you're being um, you're being unjustly accused, and um, he he was not uh, a teacher of error. He he knew the church fathers so well that the people that did not know the church fathers as well as he did accused him because he wasn't saying the same thing that they were used to, <laughs> and. Uh, he said, you know, they were the ones that need to go more deep into the tradition. So anyway, um, yes, yes, he did. He did reflect on Thomas More's martyrdom. And some people have tried to use that 
to create uh, chinks in his character. And I, I strongly disagree with, with that approach. Doctor, this question comes in from Teresa, and she asks uh, what you mentioned, uh, Erasmus's uh, editions of the Church Fathers that he published, uh, but did Erasmus write direct biblical commentaries, uh, like Erasmus on Romans, for example? Yes. Um, They're called paraphrases. His paraphrases on the New Testament, and they're being published in English now. So a number of volumes, if you, if you go to the collected works of Erasmus, the University of Toronto uh, Press, there's a number of volumes. The one I would start with is his uh, paraphrase on Romans and Galatians. Uh, but there's also a paraphrase on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote paraphrases on the entire New Testament. And they're basically commentaries but they're, they're not written in the standard format for a commentary. You know, the regular format is you give the biblical text and then you write beneath the text, you know, your explanation of it. He, he, what he did, he tried to paraphrase or restate the uh, meaning of, of the, of the work. And uh, he, he had such a deep understanding of the church fathers and how they had interpreted it, interpreted the various books that they are essentially commentaries, but, but written in a slightly different style than a normal commentary that we're used to. But yes, his paraphrases of the new Testament are just magnificent works. This was considered his, his greatest service to the church was his biblical expositions. Uh, Thomas More praised these, these writings and uh, John Collett and so forth. So yeah, they're called uh, paraphrases. They read very well, they read beautifully. That's, that's what Collett said, length from you, <laughs> you know, uh, or brevity from, you. How, how did he put that? Length from you will seem brief or something like that. Thank you, Doctor. This was uh, wonderful. We have a ton more questions, but there's no possible way we can get to them tonight. Uh, we appreciate, uh, Dr. Sheck, so much your passionate uh, sharing with us of the, the life of Erasmus, his writings, his beautiful insights. Uh, thank you again, Doctor, for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.